This podcast may include adult content. Bound Off is an independent, nonprofit audio magazine committed to paying authors for their work. To join us in our mission of broadcasting great stories to a worldwide audience, please consider dropping us a dollar or two at boundoff.com donate. Welcome to Bound Off, a literary audio broadcast. In this edition, we have two stories, Four Dustpans by Sarah Pravat and The Question of Influence by Kristen Hamlin Tracy. Four Dustpans, written and read by Sarah Pravat. Listening time, two minutes, 38 seconds. Four Dustpans by Sarah Pravat. Later, we always said, in a few years. We needed the stucco house in suburbia first, the one with the sloping aluminum roof and a royal palm out front, because both of those can withstand hurricanes. We needed two real jobs, not Jake's fake job at the meat processing plant and my fake job serving square pizza in the school cafeteria. We didn't have those yet. Instead, we lived in a studio above a garage. The brown carpet smelled like mold and urine, and the ceiling was speckled with water stains that looked like old scabs. When we moved in, we tried to make it feel like ours, with posters of peace signs on the wall and a pet betta fish the color of fire coral. As much as we tried, though, the studio was not ours, especially the roaches that ate our posters at night and dragged our betta fish across the floor. One morning, I even saw a roach eating the birth control pill I'd left by the bathroom sink. The night I told him, Jake said, I'm scared. He still had blood under his fingernails from work, and his hair smelled like dirty pennies. He wasn't lying, because after almost ten years of marriage, I knew that when his eyes went unfocused and glassy, he was thinking so hard he forgot to blink. So I went down to the concrete block building on 5th Street, which smelled like apple pie and antiseptic. It wasn't as bad as everyone says. No real risk, like the days of the wire hanger. Just some pressure and a hum that vibrated through my body and a few hours of nausea. Jake asked why I was nauseous, and I told him. He was my husband, after all, and he was scared, too. The next day, when I came home from work, the entire studio was slick and oily and covered in dead roaches. I killed them, Jake said. No more roaches. We spent the night sweeping the roaches up. We threw away four dustpans full. The roaches are gone for now, but sometimes at night Jake wakes up and just sits on the edge of the bed, his back to me, hunched over and silent like he's crying or praying or both. When he bends over, his ribs rise from his flesh like welts from the peach tree switches of our childhood, wrapping protectively around him, not quite meaning in the middle. Sarah Pavat received an MFA from the University of Central Florida. Her work has appeared in several literary journals, including the Chafin Journal, Vestal Review, and Hawaii Pacific Review. The Question of Influence Written by Kristen Hamlin Tracy Read by Mark Rushton Listening time, 10 minutes When I met Scotty Townsend, we were undergraduates, and we had a class together on the history of Western secular philosophy. It had a catchy name, though I've long forgotten it. 
Of course, I didn't notice him. I was busy checking out girls, who were, at the time, this was quite a few years ago, uniformly wearing clothes of mysterious formlessness, which cinched their waists, hid their chests, and showed their midriffs in all sorts of hauntingly, unexpected, and inadequate ways. He noticed me, however. It wasn't special. Scotty noticed everything. He came up to me while I was in the library with my roommate, whose name I have also, if you can believe it, now forgotten. On his approach, I was warmed by a thrill of mixed expectations. Though blonde and wearing a rugby shirt, he had a ring of scruff on his face long enough to have gone curly, and ketchup stains on his pants, suggesting he was no social club drone. I had seen him at circulation for the last half hour, talking to a work-study book stamper, a bewitchingly pretty junior in the vein of Winona Ryder, whom I had seen flitting around various campus clubs of the literary persuasion. He asked was I working on the paper for Leonard's class, and was I writing on Feuerbach, the famous atheist and dialectical materialist? I said no, I was writing on Augustine, the Christian theologist who invented just wars, and would perhaps save Feuerbach for the final paper. Scotty said this, I'm writing about Feuerbach. I really didn't like that the question that was asked, which was about his influence on Sartre's existentialist works. I do not believe the question of influence is well defined. How so? I said out of curiosity and boredom. Well, do we require Sartre to have read Feuerbach? Do we require him to have come to his ideas, literally, through Feuerbach? What if Sartre had just been, had the idea independently and then ripped off Feuerbach for convenience? Does this not also touch on the question of authorial intent, which we had debated so heatedly in the section on Thursday with the beautiful grad student Greta? And if, for another example, Sartre had never read Feuerbach, but had heard his ideas through osmosis, through echoes in personal and cultural discourse, if this were true, is it influence at all? Or was Sartre influenced by Feuerbach Prime, if you will, a derivative of Feuerbach in some external cultural dialogue? But we do, I said, know that Sartre read Feuerbach. Remember how Leonard read us that package from the course pack? Do you think, said Scotty, turning to me with frightening lucidity, that that fully answers the question of influence? Because that seems awfully narrow to me. Well so, I said, quite stymied. What are you writing about? I'm using the question as a springboard to write about how Sartre defines humanity and how Radiohead enter into the cultural discourse, long later, of course, with their own definition. Who is to say what their influences were? Yet we can compare and contrast. When Tom York says that letters always get burned, for example, what do you think he means? But that you have to start from a single person, a person in himself, not look for meaning from an outside source. Ah, I think that song's about a suicide, I said feebly. Scotty caught his breath, as if he were about to lose patience, but he did not. Rather, he spoke to me about Sartre and Tom York for three hours. He failed the paper. Two years later, when Scotty had become, but perhaps no longer wanted to be my best friend, I was a senior and dating a girl named Shelley. I said this to Shelley. I'm worried about Scotty. He talks so much of music and poems and philosophy. What is he doing switching to an economics major? Why does he carry around case studies about mining companies who wish to start mining cubic zirconium in Australia instead of continuing to mine diamonds in the Northwest Territories, and whether this will be profitable and how long this will take and how the price of oil futures should affect their decision? Shelley said, You know why. You've told me why. Shall I repeat it to you? Because his father worked for Arthur Anderson and is now all lost, and his mother calls him at nights and begs him to help her save, if nothing else, the family summer home in Cape Cod, 
or the pied de terre on Central Park West. Because in school he was taught to wear khakis and navy blue sweaters, to play with a cross, to vote red, and to talk airily and disparagingly of his feelings. Thus, there's a side of him that worships the graven image of success as a race effortlessly won. The sun and polished mahogany of a corner office, the abundant collection of wine, the proliferation of diplomas, the freedom to be blasé about things like Europe and divorces and fads and technology. I wailed. But I know the other side of him, which is, for that reason, all the more striking. The side that is happy standing in front of a homeless man playing the flute because the man's playing Stravinsky. That side is the man, is Scotty. Oh, what will he do, that Scotty, my Scotty, sitting in an office, telling businesses how to maximize their efficiency by staggering employees' lunch breaks? Will he shave every day? Will he learn to wear a belt? Will he stop using the word gestalt in real life because his bosses won't know what he's talking about? Will he suddenly be content to say utilize instead of use every single time? Perhaps he will, said Shelley. Perhaps he will also make money, a great deal of money, and use it for his own good. He will travel to France a month every year and pay hundreds of dollars a day to stay on a dairy farm and learn how to milk cows, and thus he will acquaint himself with the oranges of the food he eats. He will buy books by his favorite authors in hardcover, the minute they come out, and see all the operas he likes, but only if they get good reviews. He will never eat fish cakes instead of lobster, or Cinnabons instead of cinnamon gelato, unless he takes the whim to. By doing this, he will, in fact, better preserve himself forever and ever as your Scotty, the young man you've idolized as a genius for two years, the young man whom you've turned into your entire representation of goodness, whom you see as something fragile and fine and quite out of this world. He will support with subscription fees the magazines and theater companies that form the intellectual discourse of the nation and take college class after work till he dies. He will be quoting to you the avant-garde filmmakers and the uncapitalized feminists of the millennium when your mind has gone staid and middle-aged. He will remain pure rather than growing up, precisely because he sold one thing to a person named McKinsey or Deloitte, a thing that was large, almost as large as a person's soul. But that was not be-all and end-all. Don't worry about it, Scotty, darling. Scotty will sort himself out. A few years after that, more than two, but less than enough to make me feel quite grown up, I finished graduate school and came to a city that was both intensely northeastern and incalculably cosmopolitan. Provincial in its atomization, and yet hugely varied in its whole. A girl named Brianna had just left me for the foggy, callid lure of Western Bay. I stumbled downtown, near drunk with sadness, leaving my rented one-bedroom home a mess of boxes. I recognized friends everywhere, with the instinctive habit, but they always turned out to be mere daguerreotypes, and soggy, inadequate ones at that. Then I saw Scotty Townsend, the man himself, jutting his hips out on the sidewalk next to a sidewalk sale rack of tea-colored used paperbacks in the pose of a thwarted smoker. His hair was grown out past his ears. His hip bones seemed to snake back into him when he saw me and straightened. Then he was showing his fine teeth and clapping me on the back as if he were a jovial father, reeling me in. Well, if it isn't the best Nintendo player I met at Harvard, he said. Is that what you remember? I asked with some pettishness. He said, hell no, but it was a good thing to remember in any case, and called me by my last name, Kushner, and asked me very seriously and almost right away if I'd completed the project I announced junior year of college and privately abandoned soon after, an assembling of a scrapbook of the life of my grandmother, who'd been a minor artistic celebrity in Russia. I did not know how to respond to this, and so I didn't, but it seemed Scotty had sufficiently proven he remembered me, 
He then felt free to move on to telling me about the hybrid online analog record store that he was starting that his father, who had apparently recovered financially, was investing in. While we were talking, or while Scotty was talking, a young man passed whose black hair had also grown to the same unkemptness that Scotty's had. He stopped and jerked his head up and down, as if his chin had been suddenly tapped from below. He said, What goes on, my man? What goes on? I'm fucking exhausted from drinking last night, and you better not read too closely what it says about your sexual prowess or lack thereof on the bathroom walls of Spite and Dival, said Scotty. Hello, Yukio. Meet Kushner. He was my roommate in college. And Kushner, meet my buddy Yukio, the best goddamn drummer in Brooklyn. After some minutes, Yukio walked away, and Scotty said these things, among others. I worked for a year at McKinsey, and you know how it is and how jobs are and how horrendous I am at writing, and so when I did not answer your letter that first time, it grew to monstrous proportions of guilt in my files, and I'm sure you can imagine. And When I got email, that didn't seem to me to be any better, because after all, email requiring less effort also seems to induce more accountability. But it isn't that I didn't miss you or think of you each time I passed a bookshop selling Annie Prue or consider your holiday cards which your parents sent me with regularity and reflect upon the brotherhood we had shared. It isn't that. It is just the job, as you know, I'm sure. At which point a fearsome young lady with chains draped from all parts of her clothes and even her septum passed and said, Scotty, what's up? Are you coming to my gig tonight? And Scotty immediately stopped talking about email. Oh, hello, Yolanda, he said. Meet my college roommate, Kushner. Kushner, this is my dear friend Yolanda, the best goddamn drummer in Brooklyn. The End Kristen Hamlin Tracy lives in New York City and works in education. Her fiction can be found in recent or upcoming issues of the Foundling Review and the Rally Review. Listener-supported Bound Off is made possible by grants from the Kern Family Endowed Fund. Further support comes from the Google Grants Program. Thanks for listening to this edition of Bound Off. Copyright Bound Off and the respective authors. All rights reserved. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts and how to submit your stories. <laughs>